0: Hello, welcome to the Inside Sports Nutrition Podcast, episode 17, where Dina and I sit down and chat with Andy Blow, sports scientist and the founder of the Precision Fuel and Hydration Company. Andy is an amazing, amazing person, well-respected in the field, a great athlete also, and just a little bit more about him. He is a sports scientist. He's the founder of Precision Fuel and Hydration. He was formerly an elite-level triathlete, uh, who can count top 10 Ironman finishes and an age group Xterra world title to his name. It was during his racing career that he discovered how personalizing your own carbohydrate, electrolyte, and fluid intake can make such a big difference to performance. And that led him to setting up the Precision Fuel and Hydration Company, company that specializes in helping athletes with their fueling and hydration strategies for both training and competing. Andy lives in the UK with his wife and two young children, and Dina and I sat down today with him and chatted everything about hydration and sweat, really. And some of the topics we, we chat with him about is why hydration is so important and often overlooked. When is, it, uh, is drinking to thirst or drinking to a plan An okay approach, if ever? What do we know about master's athletes and hydration? The benefits of sweat rate testing? if you're doing it right surprising findings of team sport athletes just uh, such as those who play football and baseball uh, the luke henderson ironman case study that andy shares with us the ins and outs of exercise associated muscle cramping the physiology of sweating sweat composition testing methods and some questions from the listeners can we just salt our foods to get extra sodium why do we pee more when it's cold outside how do i know if i'm taking too much sodium so This is a fantastic episode that Dina and I sit down and chat with Andy Blow. Great, great takeaway messages for all listeners. So we are super happy to have you. Thank you for listening and supporting the Inside Sports Nutrition Podcast.
1: Well, welcome to the Inside Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Dina Griffin, and I'm joined by my host, co-host, Bob Sibahar. How are you, Bob?
0: Good morning, Dina. I'm wonderful. How about yourself?
1: Awesome. Except I'm also extra excited today because we have a very special guest joining us from the UK. All Uh, the
0: way across the pond.
1: Across the pond, someone we've known for several years, Andy Blow of Precision Hydration. Andy, thanks so much for joining us on our podcast
2: yeah, thanks, thanks, Dina and Bob. it's um it's been a while since we've all been in the same room.
0: Yes. It, it has.
1: has. I was looking back at my notes because I couldn't remember the year even that we met, but I guess it was two thousand and fifteen when you were you were you know, done tons of travel over here in the states, um, teaching various uh, coaches and leaders in different settings how to conduct sweat composition testing and in this whole area that has come to light um, in that, yeah, 2015. So it's been a good, uh, what is the math? Seven years? Seven years. Anyways, Andy, we wanted to have you on uh, mostly to talk about hydration. You're such an expert in this area with your own story, your own education and experience professional level and the, the amazing company you've built with Precision Hydration. Um, But I wonder if we could start with a couple kind of basics only because so many athletes come to us, you know, looking for sports nutrition guidance. It seems like, you know, fueling is always on the top or comes to the top of this, you know, the radar here in priority list, but hydration and electrolytes seems to be kind of down the list or not thought of or not realized in terms of the importance of it. So I wondered, Andy, if you could start us off here with you know bringing some new respect to the table why hydration is so essential for athletes to be looking at not only from performance angle but from health
2: yeah that's it is a it's a good point It's one that I certainly was was keen to make when we started out as a company ten or eleven years ago was that hydration always seemed to be a bit of a poor cousin to nutrition and fueling and i think over the years over the last decade i mean maybe my perception on this is skewed because it's what i talk about all the time but maybe maybe there's a little bit more um you know it's it's talked about a little bit more certainly sweat testing and those kind of things are talked about a little bit more but yeah it's tended to be that fueling advice was given a lot of bandwidth and then hydration was kind of like well yeah you need to drink some water probably put some electrolytes in it um, move along with your day kind of thing (laughs) and and really you know for for athletes I think the thing that's happened in parallel with with that over the last 10 years is that Obviously, we we all collectively work with a lot of endurance athletes, especially ultra endurance athletes, probably because that world has literally exploded in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. The amount of people who are now doing long endurance, very long endurance events, often in hot conditions, means that hydration is far more of an important factor. We know that fueling starts to become a factor, you know, after 90 minutes, two hours in, you know, in, in, in normal endurance events so there's a big emphasis on fueling these days in running regular marathons and that sort of thing but in the ultra world and and in the in the fact that a lot of these events are in hot countries or hot environments the the amount of emphasis that needs to be placed on hydration is just increasing and And what it boils down to physiologically, I think, is that getting athletes to understand, because everyone intuitively understands that hydration is important to some degree or another, but it's understanding that obviously dehydration during a long endurance event has a massive effect fundamentally on your blood volume. And that really, when we talk about hydration acutely for athletes during an activity, the thing we're most interested in doing is protecting preserving blood volume to the best of our ability because that supports the cardiovascular work that you're doing it helps with your ability to sweat and your ability to dissipate heat by pumping blood to the surface so it's kind of different to the conversation around day-to-day chronic dehydration versus acute but when we're talking in, in in the athletic context it's usually yeah management of blood volume
0: Indeed, on the on the hydration, but also dehydration side of things. So, you know, back in the days, we used to define dehydration. Well, I think there's been so many messages with dehydration from the past, right? Like, okay, drink to thirst, and now we've got very specific strategies. Or, like, what what is dehydration? Like, how do we define dehydration these days in in the athlete scope in the athlete world?
2: Yeah, again, it's another it's another good question. Which sounds easy, doesn't it? Because dehydration is basically you know the loss of body water to some right. other, but but there's lots of different ways, and there's lots of different implications with dehydration. So, if you the classic way to assess dehydration during a sporting activity is to measure body weight loss because mm predominantly although we're burning glycogen and that has a small impact on weight change generally speaking and i'll i'll kind of use the metric just because that's what i'm used to working in, but you lose a kilo of body weight and you've lost about a liter of sweat because mm. one kilo of water weighs one liter of water weighs one kilo and that's a good that's been a way in which kind of hydration status is typically being assessed because Um, it's an easy way to do it and to a degree you could argue it's relatively accurate you know it shows you that that loss so we would probably define dehydration as beyond say a two or three percent drop in body weight from resting and normal Um, Mm. but then that in itself pulls pulls a whole load of other questions into the equation like like what is normal body weight because but normal body weight fluctuates. If I, I went through a period recently f- because I was doing, um, I was sitting on my Watt bike, doing some exercise sweat testing, testing some different sweat patches and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I was weighing myself every day and it was not uncommon for my morning resting body weight to fluctuate by up to half a kilogram, which is about, wow. what's that? pounds? That's like a pound or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
2: something like that just through like, I guess, differences in hydration status differences on what i ate the day before Mm -hmm. this, that and the other um, glycogen depletion levels or whatever so immediately you bring this kind of this it you bring a a significant confounding factor into the equation if you're just going to look at body weight Mm -hmm. the other thing about dehydration is are we talking about dehydration at a cellular level or in terms of blood volume because it's very possible to have normal blood volume but decreased intracellular fluid stores or it's mm. or vice versa you can have high levels of intracellular fluid relatively speaking and acutely low blood volume if you just sweat it up a lot out when you're exercising all of which so and we've got other situations where if you're becoming hypernatremic low blood sodium drinking a lot of water you can have a lot of water in your body sat in your gut and in your stomach mm. you can, And you've taken on a lot of water, but it's not actually been absorbed into the body yet. So on a set of scales, you'd weigh pretty well in terms Mm -hmm. of hydration status. But are you actually well hydrated? You know, it's like, no. So it is a really tricky one to define. But in order to be helpful to people, you kind of have to bolt it down somehow. And I think that's why most of the time we settle on this idea of dehydration is defined by a body weight change from Mm an optimal normal. do do
0: you think there's much efficacy in using the you know drink to thirst or drink before thirst or do you think that's kind of old school now
2: yeah it's the, the 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 problem with all of this is that there's no one right comprehensive answer so do i think sometimes athletes can and should drink to thirst it's like absolutely and i think areas in which you can almost categorically say that that is true is if you take various parameters like is the athlete really experienced and really knows their body, that is an indicator that they're more likely to be able to drink to thirst and listen to their body because they've actually got prior experience to draw upon, which tells them Mm -hmm. what cues they're listening to. If, if an event is maybe cooler in temperature and potentially shorter in duration now appreciate their vague ish statements, but you probably you know if it's on a continuum if we go cold events short duration experienced athlete that person in that situation is almost certainly going to be able to drink to thirst because the implication of like screwing up your hydration is there's limited downside and you're probably based on your experience going to get it right if you go Mm -hmm. all the way to the other end of this kind of imagine continuum i'm talking about you've got a long event that's really hot with an inexperienced athlete do i think you should set them off like drinking to thirst absolutely not i think Mm. that they need some kind of guidance in terms of fluid volume electrolyte replacement in order that in the early part of the event they can certainly drink to a relatively rigid predetermined strategy but then the key is is at some point in into that event, that individual probably needs to switch the listening to their body and drinking to thirst. Because whatever predictive model you've used to to work out that they might need, for example, sixteen ounces and five hundred milligrams of sodium per hour, if the error in that is even relatively small over twelve hours, that's a huge compounding error. If they if they rigidly stick to that plan, even though they're throwing up loads of water late on because they're mm-hmm. over drinking, it's kind of a bad idea, isn't it? So. Right. Right. So that's that's how I try and think about it. Is these continuums? It's like drink to thirst is definitely applicable for some people some of the time, and then at the other end, you need to drink to a rigid plan some of the time, and then there's a sliding scale in between that that means that uh, it becomes more and more appropriate to know more and, and plan more or less.
0: Yeah,
1: that's beautiful, actually. I, and I remember you saying that often uh, in some of your other um, educational presentations, Andy, that like some of these guidelines work for some people, some of the time. (laughs) But I think that's the point here that we're trying to make is there's a lot to it. And although we're not trying to complicate everything, it is bringing to light some of the nuances and things like you just mentioned the experience level of the athlete the conditions that they're, that they're in and, you know, intensity duration, all of the inputs. And so it can't be as much as many athletes, you know, strongly desire this exact rigid hydration plan to be delivered. It needs to be fluid and consider all the elements on the continuum that you're referencing.
2: Yeah. I I liken it a lot of the time. Something that athletes can wrap their head around is pacing in an event, Mm -hmm. you know, because, we've got fantastic GPS watches and other devices now that can really accurately hone in on your pacing. If you're a runner or power meters are probably the equivalent for, for cyclists. And, and, mm-hmm. They they can be incredibly useful in terms of setting guardrails within there so that say when you're running a marathon you don't go off too fast because that's a common problem you can use a watch and have a plan to run to pace but would you send a novice runner off to run a marathon like just saying totally run by how you feel if they do that hmm. the likelihood is 99 out of 100 of them are going to start fast and finish slow because they're going to yeah. they're going to die and blow up so it's like any any other skill that you you kind of ultimately your body gives you so much feedback about its current status when it comes to nutrition hydration pace oxygen debt whatever it is that Mm. you just need to spend the years like practicing and learning to read all those cues because even with all the sophisticated technology we now have nothing can give you as much feedback as your own body the difference the difference is when you're starting out on that journey it's so overwhelming all that feedback you're getting from your body you just don't know what it is so the way i see technology and sweat testing and hydration plans or nutrition plans or whatever being the most helpful is helping people to skip out the years and years of unnecessary trial and error from absolute zero it's like i would imagine that you know you guys if if i came to you as a novice marathon runner i could get eight or nine tenths of the way there with my nutrition plan for that race by simply talking to you and then it's that last 20% that where I've got a there's a little bit of personal nuance to figure out and I suppose that's how trying to
0: absolutely what so speaking of the you you mentioned years and experience and kind of knowing the body what do we know these days regarding hydration strategies with the master's athlete right the aging athlete now because they have some of them have been doing it for years like what what do we know these days about that
2: yeah, we, we wrote a blog on this a little while ago, which proved to be really popular, trying to sort of pass out some of the questions and some of the experience that we were getting working with older athletes. And we we tended to see a few common themes emerging, which is in the literature and in experience of talking to older athletes, they definitely report and it's been measured that the thirst response diminishes a little bit. So. Mm-hmm it's you if anything likely to be less well tuned into your thirst whether i always have a question mark over whether out and out experience compensates for that in some way but but at the same time physiologically speaking it's 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 a truism to say that you know you you basically your thirst response diminishes which means which if anything pushes you closer on my sort of imagined continuum to maybe drinking a bit more to a plan because mm. your instincts might not be as sharp There's then then the other key factors for older athletes are inevitably, even with strength training, there's likely to be a loss in muscle mass, Mm -hmm. muscle mass and and muscle cells are where a lot of intracellular fluid is held. So you tend to have uh, overall total, less total body water, which means you've started with less of a reservoir of fluid at the start of any event or session, which means you might need to drink a bit more. And also the other thing is like kidney function and the fact that kidneys don't function as well. You tend to urinate more rather than mm. less. So you tend to, if invert commas, waste a bit more fluid. Mm. So all of all of those things tend to add up to older athletes being a, a little bit more, perhaps needing to be a little bit more proactive about their hydration plan, maybe drinking a little bit more and also Maybe using a few more electrolytes than than younger athletes. We've and we've certainly seen that appears to work with some of the masters triathletes we've worked with, for example, who right. you know drinking a, a stronger electrolyte solution on the bike during a triathlon maybe results in a bit less cramping on the run or mm. that sort
0: of thing. Is there an age that you define with masters athletes, or is is it is there an age in research that they define these days?
2: yeah do you know what i I don't i don't actually know because obviously in technical terms you start to hit masters certainly in the uk sphere it's at 40 years old but i reckon right. you'd probably be treating like i'm I'm in my early 40s now and mm-hmm. although i've noticed certain things about my performance are obviously becoming more challenging that i still am within i think if i trained hard i'd be within a reasonable distance of my best ever abilities Mm-kay. Certainly mm. as, as you get beyond 50, I know that in strength terms, it's kind of 55, 60 is often a bit mm. of a threshold where mm. it's. A, but to, to be honest with you, but I'm not, I'm not sure what the, the threshold there would be exactly.
1: Okay. Okay. Amazing. Andy, can you talk to, uh, and you talked a little bit about this earlier with regard to, uh, weather conditions, but. For some athletes that are taking a fresh look with like, it's a new training year ahead and and maybe they are currently in winter or colder climate uh, and they know that like their A race is, you know, uh, October and it's going to be hot, maybe even for the the Kona athlete or, or someone that's going to be eventually competing in an extremely different environment from where they are, you know, eight, nine months prior do you have some thinking points around this for athletes, how to translate their hydration needs? I know we haven't talked electrolytes specifically yet, but just some, some higher level things to think about as we go through even just seasonal changes.
2: Yeah. That's always a really big challenge. And one that we see with athletes a lot who, cause Kona is a great example. It's the aspirational race still for a lot of triathletes mm-hmm. in the world. And you, you train and compete in the uk and it's relatively cool conditions even a hot day is like is not going to cut it on the what you get on the on the queen k and it's it is a real challenge because then you're trying to prepare for for frankly the unknown and i would always say in practical terms it's almost essential if you want to do well to do two things one is like early on in your cycle for training for that is expose yourself to those to those conditions either by ideally going somewhere that that allows you to experience the environment or as an absolute fallback like going and doing it indoors in a in some kind of climate control Mm -hmm. just so you can actually because it's it's all very well sitting here talking about pushing 300 watts on the bike in 89 degrees fahrenheit and 92 percent humidity but until you've gone and done that Mm
0: -hmm. you just
2: can't wrap your head around quite how oppressive and difficult it is and there's kind of an, I think it's always good to do an early move to, to prep. So you get, and also at the same time, then what you can do is do some of that pre and post weighing. So you can see the kind of difference. Like if I run for an hour in Kona like conditions and I run for an hour in regular conditions, what does that do to my sweat rate? You know, is that Mm. like two times sweat rate, two and a half times, one and a half times. And that starts to give you an appreciation of what you might need to do to your hydration strategy later on. And then, if you can, the other thing, and a lot of athletes will try and do this, clearly is like try and get ten days, two weeks of acclimatization in in the environment before the race, because that allows you to, as you're starting to taper your training down to to start to refine and build build on what you might do with your hydration plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I think it's disingenuous to 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 sort of try to come up with a a formulaic plan which would say if your hydration requirements in these conditions are x then your it's x multiplied by 1.5 or 2 in terms of something that would apply to everyone but i think for you as an individual if you can start to work that out
0: Mm -hmm.
2: uh, that's that's super helpful ironically when you get to the really hot and humid events though one thing i would say is that for most people they're almost going to be bumping up against not how much they need to drink But how much they can drink in Mm. and and absorb, because clearly we often see sweat rates above two, two and a half liters an hour. And I know of very few athletes that can even get close to drinking 1.5 liters of fluid an hour. So quite often in the really hot and oppressive races, what you're doing is you're kind of going out and testing how much you can take in and and absorb.
1: Yeah, the sweat rate testing, it's such an easy tool for us to use. And I know on the Precision Hydration site, there's a great spreadsheet. I encourage people, if you're needing some sort of guidance there on how to um, start doing some sweat rate testing to figure out your fluid losses across a, you know an array of conditions and training intensities, the spreadsheet you guys put together is, is super for tracking our own data
2: yeah and if, if people want to download that and, and play with it then they can always they're always welcome to email it back to us as well for a bit of comment you know and mm. to look at look through a bunch of sessions the thing the reason why to a extent sweat rate testing like that sometimes has a bad name is because people occasionally say what's the utility in doing that if you do it once and you learn that you're sweating mm. one liter an hour do i replace it?" and it's like well as far as I'm concerned, it's not an activity to do once. It's an activity to do a number of times in a number of different conditions. And to build up a, a basic picture, it's not like a clinical thing that you can just do one time and get one result. And you've got to you've all that the nuance around intensity of activity, environmental conditions, you know all the factors that affect your sweat rate just need to be accounted for and the really diligent athlete will go out and try and simulate race pace race clothing race conditions do Mm -hmm. it a few times and pretty soon then you kind of get a a, you you kind of get a picture of what it looks like and that's when it becomes useful to you not kind of a one one hit test
0: I think that's really important, Andy, to just make sure our listeners understand. And, and I know Dean and I both promote this with the athletes we work with, is do sweat rate testing at least a few times throughout the year. I mean, you mentioned the environmental stress, even when training cycles change, right? And especially for our multi-sport athletes, our triathletes in particular, like sweat rate may change from the swim, the bike, and the run uh, depending on the mechanics and economies of movements. So I think that's that's a really important message. Andy, I know you've, you've traveled so much to the US. I don't know if you're still doing it, but I know you, I mean, everything that you were doing with, with precision hydration testing, you were doing major league baseball and NFL, um, what what differences have you seen with team sport athletes relative to hydration versus the endurance athletes, if, if any?
2: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting one because until I came to the U.S., I we as you guys well know we've done a lot in Major League Baseball for many years. Right. When we got contacted by the first Major League Baseball team, I honestly thought, why on earth are these guys even remotely interested? They just stand around, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um you know there's no there's no this isn't this isn't a, a, like an athletic sport and then of course yeah. that's that's just a horribly british ignorant <laughs> of viewing, it, of viewing it because then one of the first places i went to was i think it was like uh somewhere in like jacksonville florida oh yeah went and stood on the field in in the kind of pre-season in the pre-season and yeah it's like literally hundred degrees with eight, <laughs> 8% humidity and my shirt, I'm only watching practice so my shirt's soaked. And then I, meet, <laughs> then I meet the catcher and the catcher is like having to change clothing. At different, oh. And and then, so basically all of a sudden i got this like huge appreciation for the fact that it's actually quite a challenging sport from it, or it can be a challenging sport from a hydration point of view. Right. So then, then it's a case of, well, every sport is different in terms of, well, loads of different things. So if you start off with the physiological and physical demands and environmental demands, a lot of sports, team sports in the US are played in very extreme environmental conditions. You can play NFL in Buffalo or Mm -hmm. Wisconsin in the snow, or you can play it in Miami or Tampa in Mm the heat. And so there's a lot of of high-level environmental stress, which means that any sport then generates a high sweat rate you've then got the sort of, then you've got the kind of workload demand on the players. And a lot of these sports are uh, intermittent, but Mm -hmm. require a lot of running around often in clothing. I mean, when you look at the major league baseball uniforms or NFL uniforms, like these things are designed for protection and, and that sort of thing, they're not designed for the, for sweat loss you know Mm -hmm. they're not like running singlets and that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. right they they increase sweat rates and and stress plus a lot of the guys that play these sports are huge they are Mm -hmm. even the baseball you know the baseball players it's a power sport and they're big guys big amounts of muscle mass we know sweat sweat is driven by metabolic heat production metabolic heat production is driven by active muscle mass so you Can generate a big old sweat pitching a baseball multiple mm. times, you know, in, in the heat and all that kind of thing. So, there's all of that which drives. So, we see some really, really high sweat rates, basically, mm. football, especially in the obvious ones being in the NFL and the NBA, where you get seven foot two basketball players running around right. in your court or linebackers who weigh 200 plus pounds, 250 pounds. And so, we've seen some sweat rates up in the kind of Three, three and a half liters mm. per hour zone quite easily. Holy moly. And we've actually we've actually been doing a really interesting load of work with a. He's actually not American, but he lives in the US. A pro, a tennis pro who lives in mm. Florida, who's been a Wimbledon finalist and you know, mm-hmm. right up there, a big guy, big serve volley player, who mm. sweats like three and a half liters an hour routinely. Wow. He's he's the most impressive drinker we've ever seen. So he can drink two plus liters sometimes in an hour during games wow. and still lose a ton of body weight
0: wow and, and he can then, he can assimilate that his stomach can handle that
2: yeah and i didn't believe it at first like until i saw it like, yeah on paper i didn't believe it but wow. he's one of these, these are very much an outlier but like probably the most extreme example but what that's taught us is that we've seen a lot we've seen quite a few of these more extreme examples i think by working in team sports where mm-hmm. where you get these savagely high sweat rates and what i think people don't realize is is very demanding for these guys is that it's kind of like the football two a day practice in august in the south they're the times when they get the maximum sweat output and that's where their hydration challenges are actually bigger than the western states 100 runners or mm-hmm. the, just because they've, they're doing this back-to-back days and you you run into the problem of depletion over a week rather than depletion in a 20-hour period
0: right so, right
2: and, and your physiology is less well suited like when when you're a we we see some decent sweat rates out of ultra runners but actually if you're ultra running through the californian you know mountains and it's only a proportion of that day in the western states is going to be in the heat because some of it you start in the dark Mm -hmm. a lot of people are finishing in the dark you're probably if you're any good at that you weigh 150 pounds or less easily you you can wear really lightweight clothing and also although you're going to move as fast as you can you're not moving that fast. So, your metabolic heat production is not super high. And what I'm not trying to do, though, is diminish the fact that there is a hydration component and a, a big challenge with those races. But it's amazing how much more of a challenge it can be in a two and a half hour NFL practice session in August, you know, than because the, the raw amount of sweat loss. Plus, plus, the other thing about team sports is like when you're a runner or a cyclist, quite often you've got drinks on you the whole time
0: right if you're doing
2: football practice you get a drink when the coach says you can have a drink so you're tactical about how much you drink what you drink when you drink it because you're not you don't you can't just go get a bottle anytime you like you know you're you've got to be focused and so Mm -hmm. i guess all of these things they're all in in some ways they're kind of minor differences but they make a big difference to how you approach things we we spend for example a lot more focus with team sport players on Making them start fully hydrated. You mm-hmm. definitely want to start the Western States 100 or the Hawaii Ironman fully hydrated. But but it's almost not. It's a silly thing to say. It's more important. But there's a massive level of importance of starting a two hour practice session really well hydrated if you're going to have restricted access to fluids and you're going to sweat a lot. Yeah, so Great. Great point. Preloading, preloading with loads of you know with additional sodium before a, a, a session like that is just one of the techniques that we'd use. For example.
0: Yeah,
1: I bet. uh, Yeah, I bet, Andy, the number of uh, scenarios you've seen that are uh, expanding the bell curve or on the outskirts of the bell curve is pretty cool. And it must be a fun part of your work to see all the unique and very individual cases with regard to sweat rate or, or sweat composition
2: yeah we've we've just looked at the data the other day actually and we've now got a significant number of athletes that we've seen who've shown sweat sodium levels over two thousand milligrams per liter wow, wow. So, yeah and you guys know the what the implications of that but the average as you well know is like 900 or so milligrams mm-hmm. per liter. that's holding steady in our database and i think okay. the the latest count not of our full database but of the kind of the bit that we were looking at the other day is about 7,000 athletes. This is predominantly amateur endurance athletes, I would say. Mm. But about 7,700 we looked at, and it was the average was 951 milligrams of sodium per litre. I think at the mm. low end, we had a couple of people down at 300, 250, 300. But then we've got like, you know, a decent percentage. I can't remember what the percentage was off the top of my head, but above 1800 and certainly a good more than a handful over 2000 now we've even had some up at 2200 2250 mm. um, we actually just published a case study on our website which you may or may not have seen yet but there's a guy called luke henderson who's an aussie triathlete who has a savagely high sweat rate above two mm. liters an hour and mm. also over 2000 milligrams of sodium wow per liter. And, and and he did Ironman Western Australia, which is, you know, frankly one of the worst events he could have picked. Right. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just hot and humid, and he's been in the he's been in the medical tent numerous times and had hyponatremia and had heat exhaustion at lots of events, and we gave him a strategy to follow in Ironman Western Australia that was so aggressive on sodium and fluid. I almost mm. checked myself and considered whether we were doing the right thing by proposing that a human should do this. Yeah. And then, but we kind of chatted it through with him and a lot of caveats. And one of the big caveats we said to him was actually, look, Luke, we're going to give you these numbers, but like, and try and do it for the bike ride. But then when you're on the marathon, you're going to have to manage the situation. Right. We don't know how going to react to this. Yeah but he, he did it, he followed it, and the guy smashed his PB by 10 minutes. And wow. That was such a cool story for us because there's a lot, as you guys well know, you guys have been proponents of sweat testing and, and that sort of thing for a long time. There are a mm-hmm. lot of naysayers and a lot of people who question the range, the validity. Is this something that's worth athletes doing? And you mm-hmm. know, not everyone. Luke is an extreme example, the same as I am in my own way, because my mm-hmm. sweat volume is super, super high. But we, you know, it's kind of like us putting a head above the parapet and saying, you know, we exist. And if we exist, there's a continuum mm. of us of people who are also, if not quite as high as so us, a bit lower. And it, it's that thing about spectrums again. Yeah, there's a load of people at the bottom end for whom electrolyte loss and sweat testing is probably null and void because they just don't need to worry about it too mm. much. And as But as you get higher up the curve, and as you start to get all these people above, above average, and then you start mm. getting them doing above average length activities in above average weather conditions, you start to create a load of people who could really benefit from understanding sodium balance a bit more. Mm -hmm. That's that's an interesting point to make. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think even on the flip side, those like in the null and void category, doing the composition sweat composition testing shows them then we don't need to be doing Excess electrolyte intake or whatever the case is, because this is your physiology and your testing. So it can still be helpful for those to merely educate on needs and and show, well, this is maybe why you have had troubles because you've been overdoing it in the electrolyte Mm -hmm. realm. But um, before we talk more about electrolytes, I wanted to touch on muscle cramping because that's something... You know, when I was going through uh, my nutrition program and and learning sports nutrition back in the day, uh, you know, the textbooks mostly attributed uh, muscle cramping or exercise related muscle cramping to dehydration. And we now know it's much more than that or much, you know, multifactorial. So I wondered if you could touch on muscle cramping and in that whole realm where we are now or what we know now?
2: Yeah, I think in, in some ways, you're right, the knowledge has moved on significantly in one respect, in that it was definitely the case in the 80s, even in the 90s, to a large extent, that cramping was always thought to be yeah, electrolyte imbalance, or even more globally, it would be deter- it would be termed as dehydration. So we'd see a lot of athletes who were prone to cramps, who would just be force fed fluids, or just try to drink more fluids to try and alleviate their cramps which often didn't which often didn't work and for for lots of valid reasons but that was what it was attributed to in the 90s the early 2000s there was a kind of move towards a lot a lot of well a paradigm shift really in terms of people saying look there's there's plenty of reasons why this could be a neuromuscular issue and have absolutely nothing to do with electrolyte balance and there was a big push towards Kind of out with the old theory, in with the new. The dehydration electrolyte theory became very un, very unfashionable, and you were you were only you were only sort of you know, keep keep you you were only cool if you were talking about the new the new theory. Mm-hmm. Then where I came at this from so in the early 2000s as an athlete and I have to recognize and sort of be transparent about my own biases in this but I was I was a serial cramper in endurance sports and I am someone who loses a lot of sodium in my sweat I used to drink to compensate which tended to make the make the problem worse and when I got a sweat test when I found out I was losing a lot more sodium and I took steps to take a lot more sodium in and a bit less fluid my cramping problems went away almost overnight Mm. they never went away completely but they were and nowadays i can still basically manage my cramping with electrolyte intake and there are there are a lot of you know not this is not just me there are a lot of stories like that we get interactions with these people all the time because we've published a big blog on cramping on our website which is one of the most frequently read piece of content we've ever written and it kind of explains if anyone's wants a deep dive into the 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 explanation behind it it's on there but you know fundamentally even if science can't explain exactly why there are some plausible reasons why sodium imbalance and electrolyte imbalance might cause fluid shift and might cause pressure on nerve endings might cause problems with muscle con- contract um, contraction and also with uh-huh. nerve transmission which mean that you know cramping and electrolyte imbalance are not completely in my head like can't be dissociated and especially because of the practical evidence when you look outside the realm of sport you see that cramping is cited as a common problem in kidney dialysis patients Mm -hmm. when they when they have their dialysis machines changed and excess sodium and fluid taken out of the body too quickly and that Mm -hmm. all that there's a it's not the same but there's a strong analogy there with if you remove a lot of fluid and salt very quickly from someone's body using a dialysis machine that's not wholly dissimilar from someone sweating Mm. out a lot of fluid and salt and experiencing similar problems we also see numerous if you talk to doctors who deal with people who are hypernatremic in hospital for whatever reason not necessarily sport related a common symptom is skeletal muscle cramping Mm. and you know there's all the industrial literature back in the 1920s 1930s about minors um, factory, uh, foundry workers and other people being fed salt with their water because they practic- they learned through practical experience that if you gave salt with water to, it would help prevent cramping in cohorts of people that were working in sweaty labouring conditions we even see it now we work, with, we work in occupational health in Australia with um, people who are working in gold mines people who are working in, on railway lines welding railway tracks roofers who are doing, putting tar mm-hmm. on roofs and that sort of stuff all day and we just always see a massive reduction uh, anecdotally uh-huh. in in muscle cramping when you correct for electrolyte imbalance uh-huh. and so for me there's there are loads of reasons why I can be accused of bias in that department, but I, what I would say is, is that I try and balance that out by saying not all cramping is electrolyte related uh-huh. there are cramps when you, when I jump on the exercise bike and I haven't been on there for ages if I've not got it quite set up right. My hip flexors are a bit pinched and that kind of thing. I can get mm. cramped 10 minutes into a ride and that's got nothing to do with being electrolyte imbalanced because mm. there just isn't time for that to happen. That's because I'm loading up my muscles in a, right. a an obtuse movement pattern that I'm not trained for. And I'm yeah. sure that that kind of cramping from unaccustomed movement or from people going too fast in races and things, that can all mm. be attributable as well to these kind of neuromuscular theories. There's another theory that is being circulated more recently. I don't know whether there's much literature on it, but the fact that muscle breakdown causes release Mm -hmm. of toxins and can Mm -hmm. effectively affect the contractile properties of muscle, which causes it to cramp, which kind of theoretically at least seems to fit because we know Mm -hmm. that we see cramping late on in endurance events when people are busting up their legs that they're Mm -hmm. they're not used to. And, and then at that point it becomes really complicated because you can't kind of at that point they probably are a little bit dehydrated as well and maybe a bit yeah. glycogen and right. maybe they that maybe the neuromuscular system is pretty fatigued and mm-hmm. yada yada so yeah
0: so it's know, not think- it's not about one right I think that's what like a lot of athletes still these days think oh I'm I'm cramping I need to drink more water or I'm cramping I need to eat salt right it's I think we need to help them understand it is a multifactorial process
2: yeah fully fully and i would say one one of the reasons that we promote the idea of taking you know following a electrolyte intake protocol if you're suffering from cramps regularly is it's very very easy quick cheap and safe Mm -hmm. right whether that's likely to help or not because it's a case of like drink this drink with lots of sodium in it at times before times and during times when you cramp if your cramp goes away right fantastic if it doesn't yeah you got to look
0: elsewhere, you know. Right. Yeah. Step two, stage two for <laughs> sure. Yeah. So as we talk more about electrolytes, Andy, this is this is interesting because as, as Dean and I alluded to, you know, we've known you for almost seven years now. We've we've adopted the precision hydration testing in our practices and just has has really it just open our minds and our knowledge base on how to approach. Uh, hydrating and, and electrolyte supplementation with athletes. And, you know, you've used yourself as, as a case study. I'm going to use me as a case study. I probably have a, a as high of a sweat rate that you do. And thus, I thought, because this is how we were taught back in the days, I thought, well, then my electrolyte loss should be through the roof, right? And it wasn't until, you know, I had, you know, I remember you visiting us and, and, and we tested me. And it was the shock to me because I actually had a low sweat sodium concentration, yet I have a high sweat rate. So for me, it kind of put into picture that my body was a little bit better at conserving this, the sodium stores. But that completely changed my electrolyte usage, both in, both in training and during competitions. And I just, you know, there's so much floating around with electrolytes these days. And, and you're, you're, you're the expert on this and you know this firsthand that a lot of, a lot of people are saying, no, we don't need supplement electrolytes anymore. We don't, our body is fine. We remain in homeostasis. Like, what is your take on this? Because this has been disrupting the sport nutritional world for the past few years.
2: Yeah, no, it's a really good, it's a really good point, Bob. And I think it's probably a case that it's, a, it's a react, it's a natural reaction from intelligent people to the to the egregious marketing that's been Mm. done by sports nutrition companies and people you know the gate you know i'm going to use the word the, the gatorades and that not to Well, I am going to single them out, but only because they are the one that gets all of the press on this. Right, right. Kind of idea that we've been oversold the idea of electrolyte replacement because when when you produce a product like a Gatorade or like any product, it's natural for the marketers and the salespeople to go looking for the biggest addressable market for it, Mm. and they will be going, "Well, we can sell that if we can kind of like convince people that whatever you're doing sport, you're going to need this, you're going to need a bit, you know, going to need your carbs, you're going to need your electrolytes and your fluids and package it up and sell it. We can sell it to everyone and then mm. then it's going to be a great success. And that's kind of what, what happened. But then the more the, the sports science community, when they look at it and they go, well, actually, you know, that's been oversold. And the natural reaction, rather than then being subtle about it and trying to pull it back to the point at which, okay, well, this is useful for some people in some scenarios, is less of a headline-grabbing stance to take to say, what you've been told, everything we previously knew is wrong, now this is welcome to the brave new world of, of getting it all right. And there are, there are people who will just, sh- you know, shout me down and just say like category, mm-hmm. nobody needs to take sodium and fluid. Like the, I'm not going to name names because it would be professionally uncourteous to do so. Yes. But the, guy, the guy that Luke, Luke Henderson sent me, you know, corresponded with me and said, I was told to three or four years ago by an eminent sports scientist that mm. all I need to do is drink water to thirst and my body's homeostasis will sort itself out. Oh, wow. That, he basically said that was the worst piece of advice. I've. In retrospect, that was the worst piece of advice I ever got because I followed it because I thought this person knew what they're on about. And it ended me up in hospital. Uh. and so the thing is the body is really flexible and for for people like yourself bob who are maybe on the lower end of the spectrum mm-hmm. or who aren't doing as or aren't doing as long and hot events and things like mm-hmm. that there's definitely a case like i don't take a bottle of electrolyte drink out with me every time i go out and do a bike ride or something mm-hmm. like that i live in a cool climate and um you know i don't go out training for that long so i'll only right it's cool to use when you want to use it and i i just struggle with this concept that people have to go really extreme on this it's like we we don't all need electrolytes all the time and we don't mm-hmm. all not you know we should use them if appropriate it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of simple but also seemingly not in terms of communicating because as you i think you guys alluded to it earlier people want the simple answer they want to be told right what to do they want a rule of thumb you know humans we're good at what we're fantastically good at is assimilating loads of complex information down into little rules of thumb because otherwise we couldn't get on with our day. You know, if you, right. if you, had, to, if you had to worry about the nuance of everything, it's just that this unfortunately is a slightly individual and nuanced topic. So yes. If you want to get it right, you have to be prepared to engage with it.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that's a good a good swing here. And, and Dina, I know you wanted to specifically talk about testing, right? Because this, Andy, you're saying it's, it's very individual. We know it is. And the beautiful thing about it is now Now athletes can learn their individual, not only their rates, right. By stepping on the scale pre and post, but also now the sweat sodium concentration. So Dina, what, what, what do we, what do we want to ask Andy about?
1: Well, I mean, I think there's still a lot of unknowns amongst the athlete population. Like how how do I actually learn my sweat sodium concentration? And there's confusion. Like, is that the sweat rate testing, but these are different. Parts of the equation, right? How much fluid you lose, but what's in the fluid Mm -hmm. and um, with the technology that you've brought to the forefront, Andy, with the advanced sweat testing um, that precision hydration offers and your, your sweat testing centers across the world. Can you explain what that looks like? And then I don't know if you want to mention just in comparison to some of the other methodologies out there, how this one's different or there's pros and cons with everything. But if you wanted to talk to the the technology and the testing, that would be great.
2: Yeah, for sure. So start starting off there. Really, The physiology of sweating is that your sweat comes out of your sweat glands, the little holes on your skin that that are fed they're kind of attached to the capillary bed in your vascular system. So when you sweat, this, the fluid of sweat is actually a component of your blood. It's part of your blood plasma and your blood. That's why it affects your blood volume as you sweat more. Your, your plasma contracts and you you lose some of it out onto the surface of the skin. Now, blood plasma is super, super salty. It contains about 3,600 milligrams of sodium in every liter and because the electrolytes and the sodium are a valuable resource to the body, the body has a way of reclaiming some of that salt and sodium before it exits the sweat gland onto the skin. So there's little channels in the sweat gland. The sweat moves from your capillary bed into your sweat gland and works its way out to the skin. And it doesn't come out at 3,600 milligrams a litre because you reabsorb some of it and save it into the body. Now, the fundamental difference between individuals appears to be the ability to conserve or not different amounts of that sodium so bob you're a great example as compared with me because i think mm-hmm. your sweat sodium was i'm going to say in the 700 region,
0: uh, mid sixes mid sixes yes 650
2: let's say milligrams yep. of sodium per liter and yep. mine is 1800 and something normally so, <laughs> so in really simple terms like my sweat contains three times as much salt as yours right you you've no doubt had a few sweat tests I've certainly had hundreds of sweat tests and what we find is when we multi-test people that there's a little bit of day-to-day variance but unlike sweat rate this is a bit of a constant it's or certainly it's enough of a constant in as much as I'm still a medium sweatshirt and I was a medium sweatshirt you know six months ago right right so it's, it stays within that zone. And there are, there are extreme cases where you might cause fluctu- larger fluctuations in sweat sodium, but from everything that we know and all the, the data that we've gathered, it appears that that is a pretty fixed genetic factor. So you just mm-hmm. kind of lose more or less. That's got something to do with the way the sweat gland works and the fact that the CFTR channels that reabsorb sodium are more active and more abundant in some people than in others. And hence we see this range, and the average comes out at about 900 milligrams of sodium mm. in a liter of sweat. Okay, and so that's that's what when you do a sweat composition test, ultimately that's what you're trying to figure out is like where do you sit on that that spectrum? And mm. like we talked, we touched on the idea of the body, the homeostasis and self regulation. That number's important in terms of how much sodium you lose in your sweat but only i think in terms of using it as a categorization model so the fact that you're 650 bob if we tested someone who was 750 mm-hmm. that's like that you could say that's a significant difference that's 100 milligrams of sodium you know but in the real world would right. that affect what we recommend you to drink you know not really the right. difference when you're 600 and i'm 1800 mm-hmm. that is that is because over five hours do the math on that and yeah. it's like i'm right. using a lot more sodium so we kind of want to categorize you as low medium high or very high mm. and then your point about the testing technology dina this you know testing sweat you can do it the, the 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 traditional the old school way if you like which is you put absorbent patches on the body you get someone to mm. exercise you collect the sweat you you squeeze those or, or centrifuge the sweat out of the patches mm-hmm. you then have you then take that sweat and you apply it to a measurement device of some sort the gold standard in, in a laboratory is called flame photometry you can put it through a conductivity analyzer you can you can do um, you can use iron selective electrodes you can do lots of different things but ultimately you basically come out with a number which is how much sodium is lost in the sweat and that that's the that's the traditional way of doing it it's still a very valid way of doing it if you're in a controlled laboratory environment Mm -hmm. or even in the field if you've really got people who know what they're doing you can get some decent results Mm -hmm. it isn't it is potentially fraught with a few problems around accuracy and repeatability just because it's hard to do it right you know it's a tricky Mm -hmm. decision if you if you're trying to you, you can imagine when you're collecting from absorbent patches if you get evaporative loss of some of the sweat and don't process the sample quickly enough or well enough you often get higher rather than lower readings because the water component of the sweat can evaporate and the electrolyte Mm -hmm. remain and they appear hyper concentrated so one of the common issues we see when people come to us and give us sweat testing data from patch tests they've done in the in the past especially if they've done them at home is that we see egregiously high results which then Mm. we can't replicate if we test them in another way and that's right. because they've lost evaporative loss of this, this the the fluid component of the sweat. With with the method that we use, we use a, a sweat um, inducer. It's called and it's two <laughs> electrodes that sit on your forearm. It uses a small chemical um, chemical st- that stimulates the sweat glands to produce sweat. And then for about twenty minutes after you've collected the sweat. Uh, so after you've applied the inducer you can collect the sweat into a little um, coil of tubing which is mm-hmm. called aqueduct and mm-hmm. then that's a, that, that avoids any evaporative loss and it means the sweat sample is there super clean super easy it controls the sweat rate and you haven't had the the side effects the, the great side effects you haven't had to make the athlete exercise because yes then you can do it sat in a chair it's kind of an easy test to do and then you can run it. We run it through a desktop analyzer typically, mm-hmm. which is, which measures the conductivity of the sweat sample, and then immediately you get a result. And that kind of gives you. The, and then on the horizon, of course, we've got like wearable tech, which is mm-hmm. talked about, which has not really been fully commercialized yet. And there's various mm-hmm. companies doing patches and other things, but ultimately, a lot of what of those are going to tell you is the same thing. It's like they'll mm-hmm. do it a bit more in real time, right? it's the same number so you've got that sweat sodium score and then that plus whatever data you collect on the sweat rate you put those two together multiply Mm -hmm. sweat rate and you add your you 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 work out your sweat concentration multiply the sweat rate per hour over the amount of hours of activity and that gives Mm -hmm. you a figure for a net fluid and sodium loss for an activity
0: yeah, and I, and I think it's important, like you said, like the sweat sodium concentration test, you literally do one time, correct? Yeah. yeah, but the sweat rate, just to reiterate what you said earlier, the sweat rate, we really have to promote our listeners and our athletes to do that frequently throughout the year because that is going to change. Thus, it's going to affect the amount of fluid and the amount of electrolytes consumed, correct?
2: Definitely, yeah. And okay. we, Yeah, and I think, you know, because things like, um, yeah, time of year and the amount of time you're spending in the heat, mm-hmm. you know, affect it and it's well worth staying in touch with how your sweat rate is moving over time right it is different fitness levels it's a slightly more as it's, well, it's a significantly more dynamic factor for the vast majority of people than your sweat composition
0: is which is right well, a bigger. absolutely so you know dean and i call that the one and done test but then you have to repeatedly manage and, and and really measure the sweat rate so we can we can still kind of factor that in throughout the year, which is which is perfect. I think that's a really important point for listeners to to really gather. And um, I'm going to shift gears really quick because we've got, we had some questions come up on our Instagram account from listeners, and I wanted to make sure that we asked the experts. So our, our listeners know that we are listening, right? So these are questions from our listeners, Andy, what would obtaining electrolytes through supplements or food be better after training?
2: Um, good question i honestly don't think from a physiological point of view it makes a lot of difference i think yeah. the 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 small advantage that's offered by doing it in supplements is is the measurable quantities mm. so it's a lot easier to know exactly how much you're taking in but at right. the same time do i always drink a cup of the finest precision hydration electrolyte drink after my training sessions or do i sometimes just put some salt on my lunch you know i'd be lying right. if i always did the former you i think it's a yeah. case of if you if you want to quantify, it's a good idea to to use something which is quantifiable. But a lot of the yeah. time, your body's not going to complain if you put a bit of extra salt in your food and have a glass of water with it.
0: Yeah, great point.
1: Great that point. Makes sense, Andy. This one uh, this is from a gal who who asked, "Why do fluids seem to go right through me in the winter months?"
2: Yeah, if you're if you're out in the cold, especially there's a, there is a phenomenon called um, cold diuresis, which basically means that you wee more when you're at your It's, it's why if you ever jump, go in the sea on a cold day or something like that, it mm-hmm. can induce you to need to take a pee pretty quickly. And it's because mm-hmm. the the main reason for it is that your peripheral circulation shuts down. So you direct blood flow from the peripheries to the center of the body. So your vascular system gets pumped up centrally. There's a lot of barrow pressure receptors and volume receptors in that area. And they then tell your kidneys, oh, we've got more blood volume than we need. And we. Mm. And so that can be an initial response to going in the cold. So sometimes if you're out in the cold, and let's like it's one of the reasons why hydration remains really important even in kind of sub zero conditions because sometimes until you're fully acclimated to that, because I mm-hmm. think that can improve over time, but it takes a while. And it, it often does mean that you're just, um, it, it, it just means that you're, you're peeing additionally because of that. The other, yeah. the, the only flip side to that, I would say is that there's, there is, there is a question mark around saying, well, if you are peeing all the time in the winter, is it just because you, if you're drinking the same amount you are in the summer, are you just drinking too much compared to the sweat? Mm, Right. That makes sense. Those two things can work, work Yeah.
0: How about, here's another, here's another great one, Uh, probably a quicker one to answer, I would assume, but how do I know if I'm taking too much sodium is the question. Uh,
2: Acutely, it will probably make you feel quite thirsty and quite sick. Mm -hmm. Like when you've had too much salty food, you just crave Mm -hmm. water because your body's Mm -hmm. trying to dilute the levels down chronically we have seen with some grand tour cyclists that if you take loads of extra sodium more than you're sweating out you can gain body weight over a number of days because you Mm. basically create um, fluid retention so it's the same reason why bodybuilders will avoid lots of sodium because it retains fluid and and puffs you up a little bit so Mm -hmm. chronically, i would say it's it's weight fluid weight gain and acutely it's just feeling a bit sick and thirsty
1: okay Okay, Um, so uh, an athlete that uh, that my team had test sweat sodium tested came up at 104 millimoles, which I think's over 2100 milligrams per liter of sodium, um, milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat, and so he wondered, due to his high sweat sodium concentration, if he looked at his daily nutrition and his sodium intake and significantly reduced his you know daily sodium intake through food um and did that over time how much if at all would it change his sweat sodium concentration and and would that be a marginal shift or any kind of shift if you if you can speak to that influence of of sodium in our daily
2: yeah we've for the full comprehensive answer on that there's there's a really decent blog that we've got on our website which tackles that exact question but the short answer is really it's unlikely to make a a huge difference at all from from all of the data that that we've seen and some reports It's not conclusive but it's not but it's there's enough there there's enough smoke to to suggest fire the 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 fact Mm. that you're not going to reduce your sodium sweat sodium levels by by reducing the sodium in your diet significantly. Most of this, the vast majority of sodium level control in the body is done by the kidneys, not by the sweat glands.
1: Got it. Good answer for sure,
0: yeah. Perfect, well, Andy, as we start to wind down here, um, from your perspective, what are, maybe if you could just categorize the three top practical tips for athletes, when they're looking at hydration and electrolyte usage? Like what are your, what are your takeaway messages? If you just to, to say there's three top ones that I'd like to communicate to athletes here.
2: The first one is definitely there is no one size fits all answer. So go on a journey to figure out what works for you with your physiology in the situation that you're in and don't, don't look around and you know, copy mm-hmm. Or that like listen and read and interpret and look at the signs and all that sort of stuff, but, but it's n of one is the is the phrase there. You know, it's like figure it out for, for you yourself and your interview So go go on your own journey to find it. I would say the second one is, and this is not a shameless plug for sweat testing, but I would mm. say if you're doing stuff which is longer and in hotter conditions, or if you're someone who has typically felt like you've struggled with hydration in the past having a one-time sweat test to measure your sweat composition is and talking to an experienced practitioner like you guys around doing that is really really useful because it can at least like with you bob it can rule in or out whether high sweat sodium losses are part of the conundrum absolutely i would say and then and then the third one is is really look if you accept a level of on the journey of figuring this out expect accept a level of trial and error you know, it's, you're not yeah. going to get this right first time, but if you're detailed in, for instance, taking notes alongside your training diary about how much sodium, how much fluid you're taking in, in certain circumstances, how that's working for you, then that process of, of whittling it down over time is probably what will get you to the, to the ultimate answer for you more productively than, than, than going at it, you know, as a bit of a crapshoot.
0: hmm excellent excellent
1: amazing andy you've been such a wealth of information uh we'll definitely make sure the listeners uh go over to the precision hydration blog the the resources there are uh amazing in so many ways so it's a super great educational and learning resource um, but we want to thank you so much for your time. Before we let you go, though, and um, get to the end of our podcast with our high five questions, is there anything else you wanted to add, anything to mention on your mind that we haven't covered? I know there's no. so much more, but...
2: No, there's a ton of questions. I think the best thing is hit the knowledge. If people are interested, hit the knowledge hub on our website or get in touch with us through through the website. We've got a super responsive um, customer service sports science team who love to chat with athletes about their individual questions. It's what it's what differentiates us, I believe, in the in the sports nutrition industry is that we want to engage one-to-one with with as many of our customers as possible. So look us out, chuck us your questions, and we'll we'd, you know, we'd love to help.
1: Awesome, great offering for sure. Okay, Andy. Well, uh, as we're closing out, we we like to do our high five questions, which is just a series of five fairly uh, short and simple questions, so the listeners get to know you a little bit better. Um, so we'll just roll right into those. And um, so the first one is coffee, tea, or cocoa.
2: Oh, coffee. Definitely. First thing, but I'm British. So I do enjoy a cup of tea in the afternoon.
1: <laughs> awesome. I love
0: it. I love it. Uh, second one, Andy, what's your favorite non endurance sport to either participate in or watch?
2: Oh yeah. Um,
0: That's a one tough of one. The
2: best, one of the best experiences in I've had in sport watching was going to Lambeau field and watching the Green Bay Packers play the Chicago bears. Cause that was uh, it was the it was the whole thing not just the sport but the the spectacle was amazing absolutely Mm. loved it going to a big NFL game is a is cool I'd love to go to the Super Bowl one day
0: oh yeah oh
1: nice absolutely yeah okay um Andy okay I know you've done a ton of sport and uh you you have quite an array of um sport that you have participated in over the years but if we Think about strength training do you have a favorite strength training exercise that you do
2: yeah i've got a as i've been getting older i put a pull up i put a pull up bar chin up bar Mm. i don't know why i just feel like it's the thing i should always be able to do multiples of chin up sort of a man (laughs) test yeah
0: (laughs) yeah Totally agree. Totally agree with you. All right. And all your travels in the U S and you kind of mentioned uh, green Bay and Chicago, that football game, but what is, what's been your favorite city to visit in the United States?
2: Favorite city in the U S. So I, that's, it's, it's, super tricky to, to pick one because there's so much variety. Yeah. So if I, if I hedge, hedge my bets i would say like i love near you guys so boulder colorado is okay all
1: right
2: because the outdoor yeah. the outdoors environment and the and, and because i've got great memories of spending time with good people there yeah. i've I had a fantastic family vacation in encinitas in near san diego
0: okay,
2: okay. So, i a surf bum life was good but nice. then easily i often when I fly home, I go through New York quite a bit and I can really enjoy a weekend in New York City. So it's like the extremes. I love the, the
1: extremes of it all. Yeah. Coast to coast and in between. In between
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, the last question, Andy, uh, what is your favorite breakfast?
2: Uh, yeah, uh, definitely these days it's probably eggs and some um i hoover up the leftover greens from the night. the meal the not- <laughs> <laughs> if i'm feeling healthy if i'm not feeling so healthy my kids love pancakes so okay at least once a week it's pancakes but i right. keep it clean
0: yeah yeah <laughs>
1: that's awesome good well andy uh we can't thank you enough for the time you've spent with us and for our listeners been super helpful in helping us to get this newfound appreciation for hydration and electrolytes and all the things in between. And I know there's so much more. And so, uh, we are just touching on a number of these important things, but, uh, overall, thank you again so much for your time and expertise.
2: Yeah. Thanks for the invite. And hopefully this will be the year when I get back across the pond to see you bump into you guys in person. Yeah.
0: We'd love to love to see, you, maybe go out for a little bit of training. As long as you don't wipe up the trails with us.
1: (laughs) No
2: danger that these days, man. Sounds good.
1: All right, Andy. Well, we'll sign off for today. And thanks so much again.
2: No, it's brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, Andy.
0: Well, we hope you enjoyed episode 17, where Dean and I sat down and chatted with Andy Blow, founder of Precision Fuel and Hydration. Fantastic chat. We had all about hydration, sweat, uh, fluid replacement, electrolyte replacements, sweat rate testing, sweat sodium concentration testing, just a wealth of knowledge, Andy. is. So we were very privileged to have him on the episode. Now, uh, he has passed along to our listeners a special discount for you only. So if you use the code INSIDE15, that's INSIDE15, you can get 15% off your first order of any fueling and hydration products that they sell over at precisionfuelandhydration.com. Please note that Dina and I do not b- benefit financially from any of these sales. Uh, for any of that, it's just Andy's way of saying thank you to our listeners. So We appreciate that and please uh, do support him. And speaking of that, if you want more information on the sweat sodium concentration testing that Dina and I offer, please reach out to us either at bob at enrgperformance.com or dina at nutritionmechanic.com. Now in next week's episode, super, super special. We're kind of tag teaming this because episode 18, we are actually going to be doing a what we call wild card. So Dean and I meet in person with Rich Soares from 303 Endurance here in Colorado, and we actually take him through a sweat sodium concentration test. So super, super excited. We are uh, obviously uh, you know, f- uh, taping that audio and including some cool videos and, and some uh, photos on our Instagram account. So please follow along and definitely don't want to miss that because he, Rich is going to go through steps one through, you know what, And get his sweat sodium concentration measured, but also have the professional uh, opinion, but also plan for his hydration electrolyte needs based on his physiological sweat sodium concentration. So we're super excited to have that on the next episode. If you do have a sport nutrition question that you'd like us to address on a future episode, just shoot us an email. Hello at insidesportsnutrition.com. Be sure to include your full name in your question, and we will answer that on a future episode. If you are loving what we are doing with our podcast, we certainly appreciate it. And we would actually encourage you and would love your support to help share the love, right? So if you can go and give us a five-star rating, add a review on whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast, we would really, really appreciate it. Kind of helps us grow the podcast with athletes and individuals all around the world. So please do that. We, we certainly appreciate it, like I said. And for more information about individual and team nutrition coaching, physiological and biomarker testing, you can reach out to me at energyperformance.com. That's E-N-R-G performance.com. And you can get in touch with Dina at nutritionmechanic.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and the guest involved and do not represent a replacement for medical consultation with your doctor. The information and opinions provided here are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or medical condition. This podcast is for information, education, and entertainment purposes only.